2: It's The Wonky Show. We talk the TEF results, Mrs May's money for mental health, senior remuneration, and the cost of graduation. It's all coming up.
1: The Sutton Trust Chief Executive James Turner has been in the news this week talking about graduation costs as a major issue in their work to improve social mobility and education. So, so the issue isn't new. It's a very stark reminder that students' concerns on value for money are real and that their priority for tackling the cost of education.
2: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to jog around the streets of higher education policy. As usual, we have three superb guests. In Oxford, we have Rachel Piper, policy manager at Student Minds. Rachel, what was your highlight of the week, please?
0: So earlier this week, I went to a roundtable at The Guardian, which was co-hosted with JISC Um, And it was about the role that technology has to play in student mental health. And that was really exciting. And I think they're going to be sending a write-up about that pretty soon. In York,
2: we have Ben Williamet, Chief Executive of the University of York Students' Union. Ben, what was your highlight of the week, please?
1: Hi, the uh, the highlight of the week for me has to be the story from the University of Liverpool and Liverpool Guild of Students, where their rent negotiation process resolved to put £3.7 million of rent premiums back into the students' pockets over the next four years. Um, and And I think that's worth celebrating.
2: In Wonky HQ, we
3: have Wonky's Associate Editor, Minto Felix. Minto, what's your highlight of the week, please? Rachel, if I may say something non higher education related, this week I've been fixated by the X Factor-style contest that is the race for the next leader of the Conservative Party. I've never seen um, such a process before, you know, play out before given that I'm relatively new to the UK so I'm just you know I'm awfully excited by you know who's in and who's out um, as the day's as the day's twist and turn.
2: This week we start with the University College Union or UCU as they're better known remuneration report which was published this week. This now annual report produced by UCU and in their words is designed to shine a light on the arbitrary nature of senior pay and perks in universities and support the union's call for reform. So Minto what did you make of this
3: report? So, Rachel, UCU have issued a Freedom of Information request to all universities asking a range of questions that relate to um, their Vice-Chancellor attending Remuneration Committee meetings, whether meeting minutes of this committee's work are are made available, and what they've highlighted is that 109 out of the 135 universities that responded to their request still have their Vice-Chancellor attending meetings of their Remuneration Committee, uh, which uh, Paul Cottrell, who is the Acting General Secretary, describes as, as... quite shocking. Um, in response to these findings, UCU is calling for vice chancellors to be removed from remuneration committees for full disclosure of remuneration committee minutes to be made available where where they are not uh, and for university governing bodies to guarantee that staff and student places um, are indeed made available on these committees. Um, it's worth noting that um, of the 109 universities that were found to have their vice chancellor attending remuneration committee meetings, Nine vice chancellors were listed as members of these committees?
1: I mean, I think that Vice Chancellor Pay isn't actually a big ticket item in terms of institutional economy. I mean, the the, the amount of money involved is, is, is eye-watering if you think about it as a salary, but if you think about it as a proportion of the total turnover of a university, it's a nominal amount. But of course, it is a, a, a very noisy issue. It's, it's very emotive, it's headline-grabbing, whether that's in universities or indeed any sector or, or business, or, or it's the same in charities. Um, and, and so it's not going to go away. And in that sense, I really think that universities need to work own that agenda um and to, and to really um become a bit more progressive about the way that they tr- demonstrate transparency because if they do i think people will realize it makes no real difference to, to the way that a university functions
0: mm,
2: indeed there's a, a very salient point there uh, rachel can i bring you in on this um,
0: i think i would echo what was said so far about the need for transparency and clarity but also that people will see it in comparison to other roles in the university and how well those roles are paid, Um, the precarity of other work um, in the university and and how in light of kind of recent student, sorry, recent staff strikes and that sort of thing. So I think it it does, whether we like it or not, come into that broader picture. Um, And also in terms of kind of representation and diversity as well, Um, you know, not seeing very many women as vice chancellors. or people from other demographics, and I think that that also does kind of have a part to play in in how people might feel about receiving this news.
2: Indeed, if I if I may mentor you, have, you're from Australia, uh, relatively new to this uh, the country. Um, the vice chancellor peer in Australia is is kind of viewed uh, uh, differently. Um, there isn't, um, you know, every year we get this report, and there, as Ben says,
3: um, it's it's it, it kind of kind of grabs the headlines. But in in Oz, it's slightly different, isn't it? Oh, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, we still, I think, um, see quite a lot of public scrutiny about Vice Chancellor Pay, just not to the same extent. Um, I, I don't, I don't believe, um, as is the case here in the UK. So, you know, there's definitely an unla- annual spotlight on Vice Chancellor Pay, but I just want to go back to the, um, to the headline here of the Vice Chancellor being in the room and just scratch it a bit, because I think we need to actually move away from Vice-Chancellor being able to attend a meeting to a discussion that is around what is the best mechanism for governance and monitoring in this space. So, if we actually look at the remuneration committees, they meet once or twice a year in most institutions. And they're not just responsible for Vice-Chancellor pay, but they're responsible for setting the pay of Most of the senior um, executives, the people that directly report into the Vice-Chancellor and anyone that's earning above a certain threshold, they look at severance pay packages in excess of a particular value, they look at equal pay, they look at a number of things, but they only meet once or twice a year and they typically act on the instruction of the Vice-Chancellor and the Registrar. Now. If they're only meeting once a year, one would argue that actually it's a good thing that a vice-chancellor or a senior member of the university is there to provide context and information about the university. But actually, this, the worrying thing is that it's still probably not enough to critique and actually test and, and engage with what are some really, really big issues. The other aspect to this issue is actually testing and asking what are the internal steps, what are the internal controls that are in place before this information about um, performance pay, etc. comes to the remuneration committee because again you're bringing together you know a group of very very important people but only once once or twice a year so how seriously can they actually look at these issues um in the time frame that they have is is i think the bigger issue at play here than whether or not a vice chancellor is attending a meeting right let's see who's been blogging for us this week
4: Hi, my name is Rachel Hawke. I work as Learning Lead for Aula Education, a communication platform increasing student engagement through great teaching and learning. I've recently written an article called Let's Ensure Students Get the Best Value from Assessment. This article discusses how assessment and feedback are essential to student learning. It explores the many reasons why current assessment practices in higher education are so challenging, namely that criteria, specs, and high-stakes accountability measures are constantly in flux, Descriptive assessment rubrics are difficult to understand and accurately assess against and, more broadly, that workload and capacity of educators, while not the sole fault of of assessment, plays a huge role in why educators are so stretched. The biggest challenge is arguably finding sustainable assessment approaches that make the best use of educators' time. The article proposes two key solutions to this, uh, focus on identifying the purposes of assessment in order to define the most effective assessment approaches. Pulling apart formative and summative assessment to support curriculum coherence, curriculum refinement and student ownership, making sure that students are really empowered to respond to feedback. The second is a move away from criterion reference assessment and towards comparative judgments. And discussing those comparative judgments with students and educators to help make visible the thought processes involved in arriving at academic judgments. Though we've known what good practice and assessment looks like for decades, there's still a lot we can discover about how formative assessment and feedback generates learning. And this article aims to stimulate a conversation about how we can use assessment um, to ensure students become more engaged in learning, leading to increased retention, improved results and more effective education. Hello, I'm
2: Sally Brown and the piece I've just written for Wonky is called Let's Value Excellent Assessment 2. I'm a former PVC and somebody who's completely obsessed with getting assessment right, and it seems mad to me that the test doesn't include something around assessment. So in my piece, I argue that we ought to be getting universities to include a narrative that covers, for example, training staff in assessment and feedback, the proportion of staff who are external examiners, how recently the assessment framework had been updated, and scholarship that's evidenced. A narrative around publications, academic, citizens, and social, so on. All of this is data is readily available, and I think it could
5: really enrich the TEF.
2: Next up, the outgoing Prime Minister, Mrs. May, uh, has announced that the Office for Students or OFS is to receive a million pounds worth of funding for a competition to innovate and find new ways to support mental health at universities and colleges. Rachel, as policy manager at Student Minds, it would be great if you can share your thoughts on this one for us.
0: So, this move by the outgoing PM does sit within the broader context of um, A, her broader thoughts around mental health generally, and B, the Office for Students recently at the beginning of June investing um, a a, a 6 million funding pot with co funding of 8.5 million, amounting to a total of 14.5 across 10 different collaborative projects in the mental health space in universities and colleges. So one million may seem like a strange sort of drop in the ocean by comparison to that. Um, but it is good to see universities being shown as a specific space that needs investment. Um, and what's also good about her commitments here is that she's looking upstream, she's looking to, um, to schools uh, and colleges coming into university. Um, and from student minds perspective, that transition um, and the work that happens in in schools before people come to university would prevent a lot of the difficulties that we see in the university university. university space. However, um, I think what's, whilst it is across the life courses, um, and we have actually seen a really positive um, commitment in the long-term plan in the NHS for um, CAM service, so that's a children-adolescents mental health service that goes up to the age of 25 and therefore helps students to not drop off the cliff edge, as it were, from school to university, we aren't actually seeing a commitment to reducing the risk factors that cause mental health difficulties. So, what isn't kind of shown in this is that policy decisions, for example, austerity that are made by this government, have contributed to to mental health difficulties in children, um, and that uh, a a paper by the um, the, the Mental Health Policy Commission in Birmingham shows that the, there's really never going to be quite enough staffing to cover the mental health needs. So we really need to focus on reducing risk. So I think that that's sort of the next step in this this prevention picture, as it were. To, and also in the university space specifically, we need sustained funding on core services. And that needs to be protected in any funding changes that might be happening, Um, not just innovation, although that's really key as well. I suppose
1: we all know that mental health is now, whether we like it or not, immensely in our social consciousness, but for students and parents as well. Um, And that there is a real desire to know more about how we support vulnerable young people within institutions but actually in the wider world and, and in that sense I can't help but feel I, I, I don't mean to for one second diminish the personal impact of poor mental health but, but I want to put that aside for a second and think about the actual economic impact of fixing this problem, the bang for buck on fixing mental health could be huge. The benefits for the public health bill, for UK productivity, for the employment market, for the future prosperity of, of our people and our planet could be immense. And, and in that sense, it feels like th- throwing a, a six-figure check at this you know to, 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 to hope it'll go away is, is a little bit short-sighted.
0: I, yeah, I completely agree with what's been said about how it really needs to be a, a sort of structural and systematic approach. Um, we've seen in New Zealand recently, uh, the GDP is no longer their kind of core measurement for success or progress as a government, but instead they're, they're looking at well-being. Um, and I think we can kind of scale that into universities to some extent um, and think about how we measure the success of a university um, and what we're, we're celebrating at universities. And that's why, in some ways, the University Mental Health Charter... At Student of Minds um, developed with, with multiple partners is looking at this um, and how we can measure the outcomes that a university. Um, might be able to improve around individuals well being but also the broader well being of a of a city, of a community and and a university. I think um,
3: I'm really struck by Rachel's comments around sustainability of funding. Um these this amount is for particular projects and that is a wonderful thing. But I think what the sector is probably desperately seeking also is clarity around, you know, where is it meant to take um its efforts with mental health. You know, what are the standards that we're measuring this investment against. We also have, you know, information the mm-hmm. cat now clearly laid out, you know, more so than, than, than before about what students expect in the way of disclosure of, of, of mental health information to parents and trusted ones. The HEPI report that came out last year really demonstrated that. We've got a whole heap of evidence now that demonstrate the role of peer-to-peer programs and health promotion initiatives. But actually, how are we tying all of these things together to say that, you know, at a minimum, every student, regardless of which higher education provider they attend, gets a particular type of service. And that might be, you know maybe too naive and and idealistic but i think that's actually where we need to go to sort of say you know this is this money um is is actually seeking to address um this this issue in a particular kind of way
0: yeah i think um what we have seen with the ofs funding that came out a couple of weeks ago is that a lot of the programs in that are looking at whole university approaches to different issues um and how it fits Yeah, how it can fit within all the different aspects of the university and be measured for a success. Um, I think the step change framework um, and the audit tool that is going to be coming out later in the year around that is going to be really helpful for universities understanding where they're currently at um, and where they can get to. And the charter will act as a kind of a way of universities working out what's best for them, because we can't have a one size fits all approach. Um, Each university does need to know and understand the needs of its own population before it sort of steps into the ring, as it were. Um, So it needs to step back and then take that strategic approach.
1: Universities still feel a bit shell-shocked by um, the the, the, the mental health problems that have, you know, suddenly appeared on our horizon and and on our campuses and, and, and in our lifestyles. And... And actually, I see this as a major opportunity, that we're in a period of time where the public benefit of universities is being questioned quite widely and quite loudly, quite aggressively. And if universities can step up to the plate and own an agenda and really drive an agenda around improving the mental health and well-being of young people, that the... Public benefit of that would be phenomenal. Um, so, you know, I talked about economic benefit a, a minute ago, but but imagine that the positive warmth that would be felt for universities if they really started to, I don't know, reduce the amount of people who are suffering from mental health globally, to generate a stronger economy around mental ill health, to help you know to n- nail some of the problems that exist right from childhood upwards, um, to, to support the NHS in a sustainable way to be able to invest in in mental health that would change the agenda and the narrative for UK universities. But
0: is that the
2: job of a university?
0: I think what the evidence shows is that young people, students, are atten- when they're attending university, they're unclear about what to expect from the university in terms of support. And so one of the pro- programmes that's being funded by the OFS that um, we're working in partnership with uh, UE and other universities in Sheffield, um, in London and Manchester, is basically working out what is the boundary between universities and the NHS um, and how how can that role be clearly defined to staff and students so that the student has the clearest journey between universities and the NHS. But I think there's a bigger kind of point to made here, which is that people consider mental health as just illness, just the end where you are admitted to hospital or to a service. And actually, we all have mental health and wellbeing and our communities and the places where we spend all our time living, learning, you know, with friends, those are the places where our our mental health and wellbeing is formed and supported or otherwise. So as Ben was saying, they are real opportunities to promote good wellbeing um, and healthy spaces and to have clear pathways between the university and the NHS so that those who need further support know where to get it. And so that staff know the boundaries around their role.
2: Great, let's see who else has been blogging for us this week.
5: I am Paul Ashwin, Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Educational Research, Lancaster University. My wonky piece is about how we conceive of and measure the quality of teaching in university and is situated in the context of the independent review of the Teaching Excellence Framework in England. This is being led by Dame Shirley Pierce. In the piece, I argue that there is nothing generic about good teaching. It is about providing particular students with access to particular bodies of disciplinary or professional knowledge that can transform students' sense of who they are and what they can achieve in the world. Our ways of measuring the quality of teaching need to reflect this. University campuses can be surprising and unpredictable places. Students, staff and visitors often do the strangest things. Fortunately, our ever-reliable security team are on hand to deal with every eventuality. For over a decade now we've been compiling a comprehensive record of the bizarre unfortunate inexplicable and just plain weird reports from campus security. Here's your chance to hear some of the most remarkable reports from the ever expanding case notes of true crime on campus. 0905 report that conference delegates in Hall had items stolen from their rooms security attended. It was discovered that the delegates were on the wrong floor of the hall. All items were safe in their rooms. 0210. Report of a tarantula spider in hall. Security attended and were told that the spider had gone under the bed. After careful searching by security officers, a small house spider was captured and removed from campus. The occupant of the room confirmed that the spider was the one they had seen. 1545. Security received a report regarding the parking at Cripps Hall. On investigation, security found cars parked on the grass and a group of students having a party with a swimming pool and a water slide. After talking to the group, they said they had got permission from the hall porter to do this. The hall porter was contacted and permission was not given. The students subsequently removed the pool and slide. 0343. A student contacted security control room for advice on how to treat a black eye. Security attended. The student stated that they had been struck in the eye by a flying chicken nugget while in McDonald's in the city. Security checked the eye and gave advice. 0755 and 1323 A male contacted the security control room stating that he had discovered the meaning of life and wanted to speak to a professor in physics. After discussing the matter at length with security, the person's details had been passed on to the police to carry out a welfare check.
2: Next up, we're going to talk about the TEF results. But first, I want to tell you that on the 2nd of July, we'll be hosting Counting the Cost, an event to assess the impact of the Augur review. Featuring an interview with Philip Augur on the day, we will give you a chance to hear from Team Wonky's experts, as well as the leading voices from further and higher education. We will be demystifying and digesting all the numbers such as the reduction in the fee cap, the repayment threshold and we'll look at the impact on the whole post-compulsory education system whether that's lifelong learning, further in higher education and how they relate. All of this in the context of a Conservative Party leadership race, an impending spending review and a demographic upswing on the horizon. So to put your place and to see the full agenda go to wonky.com forward slash events that's wonky.com forward slash events and we look forward to seeing you all there. Next up, the latest Teaching Excellence and Student Outcomes Framework results are in. Yay! Yes, once again, the comms professional up and down the land are rushing to their local supermarkets for gold balloons to fill the atrium for that perfect Twitter pic. So, Minto, what were the headlines of the TEF outcomes this year?
3: So, this is year four of the TEF results, and it will be the last one of this particular version, as we know that an independent review looking at TEF, and there's been quite a lot of commentary and critique about the TEF over the years, is is nearing completion. So, Dame Shirley Pearson and her team are expected to hand down the outcomes of this independent review any time now. But before that happens, we have these results. So, as of year four, um, we have the information from the OFS that 282 higher education providers are now in receipt of a TEF award, and if you are comparing gold, silver, and bronze, uh, not that we not that we do that, everyone's a winner, of course. But if we are if we are doing that, we have um, 76 providers with a gold award, 132 silver, and 60 bronze. So uh, it is it is a bit like the Olympics of um, of higher education, isn't it, Rachel? So the 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 other thing to note here is that compared with last year's assessment, we love a bit of upward movement, downward movement, but compared to last year's assessment, 12 providers have improved. A Upon their award, and four have moved down. The last point that I want to make is that fourteen providers have applied for um, an award for the first time this year. So that is TEF in 2019.
1: You've got gold, and it would be remiss of me not to mention that. Um, I can confirm I'm signing in an office surrounded by gold balloons right now. <laughs> um, uh, sadly I, I suppose i have to you know if i'm here representing some student voice i suppose um it, given that that's my profession i have to say that i don't think students care and, and, and i need to be absolutely clear that i'm not suggesting students don't care about teaching excellence they absolutely do that they, they feel that that's that's their um that's their investment that's why they're here it's just that they lack a strong sense of conviction that the TEF framework actually measures teaching excellence using through, through, through their optics you know and and i think that's something thing that the TEF is really going to have to think about moving forward is, is how it captures, if this is intended to capture the hearts and the minds of a student and or a prospective student market, is just not doing it.
3: So, Rachel, I think um, one of the things I really want to highlight is um, early in the week, Wonky pro- produced a, a, a great feature and there's a, a bunch of really excellent articles online that speak about the TEF and context of teaching, um, quality teaching in the sector. I think so much of our conversation has been reduced to these measures, but we know that TEF doesn't look at uh, the role of assessment. We know that TEF looks at graduate outcomes and not the true transformation that happens in the classroom because of, of, of knowledge and, and great teaching practice. We also know that actually, um, it's very hard to compare, uh, like for like, um, in TEF, I want to draw on an, an, an article that um, our, our colleague Jim Dickinson wrote today. Actually, um, that's really worth highlighting. So he says, you know, some of those holding a TEF bronze award have fewer students in denta- totality as a provider than some gold holders uh, do in their average business studies lectures. So this means that the level playing field um, is 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 not there. So I think you know it's it's good to get, you know, um, a gold or, you know, maybe it strives, maybe pushes some institutions to strive for for more um, if they got a bronze, but actually, you know, I really still, and I think I'd be echoing many people in the sector who feel that TEF, um, as it is currently designed, does not do an adequate job of capturing um, teaching excellence um, in, 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 in the higher education space.
2: Mm. Ben, do you agree with that? It doesn't do enough to, uh,
3: cap- to capture kind of a teaching excellence. and Should there be
2: more weight put on the kind of sh- the, sh- the student experience, or, or, or indeed more weight on the NSS results? Because that's obviously changed, and it's going to keep changing.
1: Minto much more beautifully said something quite similar to what I was saying our students views that they they, they lack this sense of conviction that the right metrics have been uh, monitored and driven in, in the current framework uh, the classic example would be that students do talk about and compare and contrast the amount of teaching hours they get is something they're interested in I, I'm not necessarily you know and yet and yet there's this stubborn refusal for anyone to talk about that or acknowledge that it's a metric in the minds of students. I'm not sure broader student experience should creep into the TEF. I think that would complicate it further if we're trying to almost broaden out um, outside of the classroom, as it were, outside of the core academic learning experience and, and, tr- and try and build upon it with wider personal development. I think that might confuse things even further.
3: Mm. Uh- I will say this, though, I think one um, opportunity in a future iteration of, of TEF, and I think, you know, organisations like Advanced HE have a really important role to play here, is to demonstrate best practice of, of, of great teaching um, excellence and to have a greater availability of case studies and information um, available to, to academics to really look at, um, you know, whether it be great classroom design or pedagogy or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that TEF um, as a ranking, you know, is short-sighted and, you know, and I think, you know, comes with certain limitations. But perhaps a TEF in context um, with greater reference to um, examples and, and, and qualitative information that, that provides a sense of richness to teaching would be very valuable.
2: Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan's son, Ben.
4: I've oh, been here my dad's still away so here's another correlation question from me I went to Oxford once and I saw people parking bikes everywhere I know Oxford there's a lot of research where I wondered if there was a link between the number of people that do just research in university and nothing else and the number of places you can leave a bike The data on cycle spaces and research only academic staff in his server does it correlate?
3: Rarely have I found a correlation question that I deeply understand let alone feel like I can answer um, but Rachel I think that Um, this question, given that a number of research intensive universities are based in London and that a number of academics I dare say would catch the tube, maybe walk, um, you know train bus, whatever um, I think this this measure may not have a correlation attached to (laughs) it
0: I feel I'm reporting live from the scene because I'm currently in Oxford and um, I do cycle, and I have often not been able to lock up my bike outside university buildings because the the bikes the buildings are the bike racks are reserved for university staff, but I don't know if they're researchers or not. So I think that, that that's missing from my analysis, but as a, from an ethnographic perspective.
1: I mean I'm, I'm I suppose I'm coming to you live from York uh, and thinking about a fairly research intensive institution I'm looking out my window and I can see uh, just from my one window in my ivory tower I can see at least 25 uh, bike ports um, my gut instinct is there probably is a correlation but not necessarily a cause
4: and it looks like there is a moderate correlation, R squared is 0. 0.51. It was tested with the number of teaching it in the academics, but it has an R squared of 0. 0.08, which is a bit rubbish. I'm also startled that old universities tend to have more bike spaces than newer ones. Apart from Angelia Ruskin, I can't see anywhere established later about the 1960s that has more than 2,000 cycle parking spaces. You'd think that maybe thinking about sustainable transport is a new thing, but I guess not.
2: And finally. The student tabloid and my favourite Wednesday afternoon read, the tab, has ranked universities by how much it costs to graduate. We saw University College London, or UCL, come out on top with a cost of £180. One university, the University of Kent, actually charges graduates to attend their own graduation ceremony. And one university has made it completely free, and that just happens to be the University of York. And Ben, seeing as you are indeed from the University of York Students' Union, why don't you give us your take on this one?
1: Yeah, so um, this is one league table that we're absolutely delighted to be at the bottom of, um, albeit that there will be some concern about the source of the funding for us to provide this free, which in this instance is a short-term arrangement uh, using funds deducted from industrial action, uh, which will be a point of significant contention for many. Um, before I explain that, though, I, I guess what I'd say is that the yes, the TAB reported on it, but actually it's, it's not a new issue. It's been going on for quite some time. Um, action on uh, graduation costs was overwhelmingly supported in a policy at NUS conference this year. In Northern Ireland, there's been an investigation by the Competition Regulation Authority into the conduct of gown suppliers. The Sutton Trust Chief Executive, James Turner, has been in the news this week talking about graduation costs as a major issue in their work to improve social mobility and education. So, so the issue isn't new, it's a very stark reminder that students' concerns on value for money are real, and that their priority for tackling the cost of education is not necessarily dealing with education fee debt, but the actual cost of living while at university, be that public transport, accommodation, food and drink, lab costs, field trips, or, or in this case, graduation costs. And, and, and I guess that graduation costs in particular will feel like a real kick in the teeth for some students, a little bit like the, the university and the corporate gown providers uh, grabbing their final wedge of my cash before I leave the institution and go and join the wider world. And it strikes me as being a little bit similar to if, as an employer, I have a, a long-serving, loyal, hard-working member of my team who's who, um, you know, having, having given me their blood, sweat, and tears, um, uh, has now been successful in finding a, a fantastic new job and they're preparing to leave. And, and I decide to throw them a party, and I tell them that it's compulsory fancy dress, and that they can only buy this type of dress, and it's going to cost them fifty, sixty, seventy pounds, and they've got to pay to come to that party, and pay for their gown, and pay for their Friends to come as well. Oh, and by the way, it's 25 pounds for a bottle of ch- the cheapest champagne available. You know that that that's simply not going to wash with people. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm delighted that, that York are at the bottom of this league table, but but I actually think it's 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 the nub of a much much wider problem.
2: Indeed, and I think there's another letter that, if I may add, is that the person who's throwing you your leaving party is going to get a percentage of the cost. It's going to um, of the price you need to pay for hiring your fancy dress outfit, which is a which is another issue. Um, Rachel, can I bring you in on, on this? As, can I just say it's great to have two Rachels on this podcast this week. How, if anything, we should try and do this more often. Uh, but Rachel, can I bring you in on this and in, in, uh, in your kind of take on this and this ranking of graduation costs?
0: Yeah, I think. It sits within broader concerns that students have about cost of living. Um, We know that from a mental health and wellbeing perspective, studies show so far that uh, fees don't have a significant impact on mental health, um, but that cost of living absolutely does. Um, And this being your transition out of university as well, um, quite a, a... like a time of change can often be a risk to one's mental health so I, I don't really want to you know make the correlation a cause here and say that you know this cost is going to cause a mental health problem I don't think that's the case but I do think that it sits within a broader a picture of students kind of having to spend too much money and those costs not being made clear from the start so students can save um, and the kind of uncertainty and Yeah, difficulty that comes with that. So, I think it's about being transparent and being clear, having bursaries and doing it in a not-for-profit way where possible. Um,
3: Just at a very personal level, I think when we think about the value of a university to an individual, there are a few moments that probably really stand out for a person. You know, when they start, the people they meet... um, maybe a little bit of what they learned, but, you know, the achievement of finishing, the achievement of graduating, it's a, it's, it, it is, is um, you know, a, a reward. It is an absolute um, moment for celebration. And I think to reduce that, to take away that experience with a fee, though it may feel, you know, like it's a trivial cost, actually, you know, in the context of what uh, the value of a university can represent to a person is, I think, such a slap in the face. And if we're really concerned about making money, there are so many other ways to package that, you know, that, that money up that, you know, does it need to be that final whack before you leave. You know, we should be doing the absolute opposite. We should be not just opening the cheapest bottle of champagne, but, you know, all of the champagne because what students have done by undertaking and completing their university study is, is a huge significance and fees have no place in that moment.
2: Ben, I want to bring you back in on this, but I also just want to uh, ask you, if I may, about the... Um uh, the nature of your graduation being free for your um, uh, students in New York, which was actually funded by the university's savings made by the strikes, I believe, um, which I thought was quite interesting. It'd be just interesting to get your quick kind of take on that, because I imagine that's quite um, a point of contention on your campus.
1: It is. Um, I mean, it's not solely funded by that. So, uh, you know, a lot of our students, a bit like Minto was saying, that they want the ceremonial stuff and they've asked a number of times why we hold our graduation ceremonies on our campus rather than, I don't know, going to the Minster or something. And one of the reasons is that we want to, you know, we are a campus institution. We, we, And, and actually, it is cheaper for us to bring the students and their families back to the very heart of where they've been learning uh, and to celebrate here. Um, so, so that's something, to some extent, we've built into our, History that, that, that we, we don't want to pay an additional premium and pass it on to our students in order to go off site to an expensive gold plated historic building. Um, similarly, the Students' Union, in agreement with the university, provide a, a free photography option from a non professional photographer as well as a paid for professional photography option. Um, you know, so, so these are things that we've built in over time responding directly to students' concerns about the cost of graduating. The graduation gowns it is, a, is, a, is a short-term arrangement. The university has been absolutely clear that it's for this summer only. Um, that's uh and that the funding does come from uh withheld funds from strike action um there was a rumor going around that there were going to be labels printed and attached to those graduation gowns that say that they were sponsored by ucu whether that proves to be true or not i don't quite know um but but yeah i mean that's that's a really emotive issue for for, for students and for staff it'll be fascinating to see how that's acknowledged um and you know i, I don't know w- will it change the discussion of the student after that you know at the end of their graduation ceremony when they go to uh celebrate with their their academics and the people who've supported them throughout their course in some kind of departmental soiree will they acknowledge that actually their staff didn't just contribute to their learning and teaching they directly contributed to the cost of their gown
2: so that is about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes and don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via itunes or your favorite android podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on teamatwonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Rachel and to Ben and to Minto and to everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen. And until next week, stay gold.